Well, good morning. Welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Jameson. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's wonderful to see your faces this morning, to hear about the glory of God and the work that he's done in, in Jesus and, and Lord willing to receive more work that he wants to do in our lives. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we're walking through uh, the Gospel of John in a series that we've called Walking with the Word. This morning finds us in chapter 6. Uh, we had five sermons in chapter 5, and I kind of got the feeling, who's ready to be out of chapter 5? Like We were in chapter 5 for a while, but there's a lot of great stuff to glean from there, predominantly the authority of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, but I'm, I'm excited to be in chapter 6 this morning. Um, one of our values here at Convergent Church is, is gospel transparency, and we say that because uh, Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, he no longer condemns us, and that gives us freedom to then share who we truly are with our brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that if God does not condemn us, we must not condemn one another. And so um, I struggled a little bit with the intro to this sermon because it's incredibly personal to me, um, so I'm hoping that... Um, you allow me to be a little transparent this morning. Um, I was born April 29th, 1989. I was born with 10 fingers, 10 toes. I was a large child. That hasn't changed. <laughs> I was born with just a splash of ADHD to keep life just a little bit interesting. I was born into a single-parent home uh, for... Most of my life, I lived with my mother for the first four years of my life. Um, my father didn't even know that I was his, if that gives you some insight into the home I grew up in. I was your average kid. I was a pretty happy child. I was energetic. I loved going outside and hunting for gardener snakes in our backyard. Um, so look at that. Hey, you're listening now. Um, but hunting for gardener snakes in our backyard. I love to ride my bikes around the block with my friends. Most Halloweens, I dressed up as a Power Ranger. I was a normal kid. <laughs> life was good. It wasn't perfect. There was certainly brokenness there, but life was good. Uh, that was until uh, I turned nine. When I was nine, my life changed forever. What I didn't know... Uh, at the time that was before I was born, my mother had struggled with numerous drug addictions. Uh, when she became pregnant with me, uh, she sobered up. Um, that lasted uh, a pretty impressive eight years. For those of you who struggle with addiction, you know how hard eight years is. Um, but before my mother's arrest, she had been working for the health department in Lansing, and I began to notice that um, over time, she kept coming home later and later and later in the evenings. Um, I spent most of my time with my grandmother. She watched me after school. And so this was somewhat shocking to me. What I didn't know at the time was that this past drug addiction had, had resurfaced in her life. And what she would do is after work, she would go and she would go to stores and she would steal. She would steal various things, electronics, clothes, whatever she could uh, to sell to people in order to fund her drug habit. And it was a very vicious and destructive cycle. Well, one, one Saturday, uh, my grandmother, she was not able to actually watch me that Saturday because she had something going on. And so my mom decided to take me with her to Lansing. Uh, she dropped me off at a woman named Debbie's house uh, while she went to shoplift. Um, of course, at the time, I was unaware of this. And when my mother left, she said, hang out here. 
I'll be back soon. And what I thought was going to be a few hours turned into almost two days. Uh, That night, my mother was arrested for the first time in my life. Not the first time in hers, but the first time in my life, and it wouldn't be the last. Um, And when she was arrested, she wasn't allowed to immediately make a phone call. This was back before everybody had a cell phone, and the people that she left me with didn't know any of her family. So I was stranded at what I now know was a crack house in in Lansing for two days um, until my mother was allowed to make a phone call and tell the rest of our family where I was. And I remember being overwhelmed with this, this one pervasive thought while I was there, and it was this, my mother has forgotten about me. I felt like I didn't matter anymore, and I felt like I was not important to her anymore. My mother would be arrested many more times in my life. I would have long stints of of living without her in my life. And to this day, I personally struggle very deeply with feelings of neglect and abandonment. And my mother was arrested for the last time in in 2016. She's arrested and placed in Shawasee County Jail, where she would eventually die from complications of drug withdrawal. I share all of this with you, this, this very broken piece of myself, not to garner sympathy or to even give an explanation for some of the reasons why I am the way I am. I wanted to share this with you, and I was impressed to share this with you so that you would know that I understand a little bit about what it feels to be abandoned. I understand a little bit about what it feels like to be forgotten or misplaced, or feeling like you've been left behind. That feeling of not being important enough to someone who is supposed to care for you and provide for you and love you. And I'm sure many of you have stories in your own life that would certainly rival my testimony. And I'm sure that that has left deep wounds and scars in you like it has me. So as we turn to the scriptures this morning and we begin to read in John chapter 6, I'd like to approach... Uh, the first part of this chapter from what I believe is, is a less than common angle at expositing this text. Today, as we look at what many believe to be Jesus' greatest miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, I'd like to try and answer this question and, and pull out some implications of, of this miracle that Jesus is doing. And the question is this, how do I know that Jesus won't forget me? How do I know that Jesus won't forget me? And my hope is to encourage your heart and and encourage mine as we answer it. And and I just feel impressed to pray before we continue. So would you you pray with me? Blessed Lord, we love you. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that we get to look at it and see the miracles that you have done. And Lord, we all have testimonies of the miracles that you've done in our lives. Lord, as I preach this morning, would you just guard my heart? in my mind, in my words, Lord. Help me not to speak anything that would be damaging, but Lord, constrain me to that which would edify and encourage your church that you love. Lord, give our eyes the ability to hear, and Lord, may our hearts be good ground for the soil of your word. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John marks a huge turning point in the life and ministry of of Jesus. Up until this point, he'd had some minor conflicts with the Jews, the Pharisees and Sadducees, some of the authorities uh, in Judea. He had 
garnered a, a moderate amount of attention, but after healing the invalid at Bethesda, Jesus' ministry exploded. His notoriety began to spread. The number of people became so great that Jesus' 12 best friends, his disciples, had very little time to eat or sleep or care for themselves. The need for this ministry was so great. And so after this point, Jesus decides that he's going to take them across the Sea of Galilee for some time to rest and recover. The aim is that they're going to get away, they're going to rejuvenate, they're going to spend time, Jesus is going to dwell with them, he's going to teach them, and they are going to be with Jesus. So join me as we read chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And it says this, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So for a moment, I'd like you to place yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Place, your shoe, place yourself in the shoes of Philip. At this point in Jesus' ministry, you've been following him for roughly two to two and a half years. When Jesus called you into this role of a disciple, you left your home, you left your family, you left whatever career you had before this. You likely left your reputation behind, as many would at this point believe that you were following a cult. You've staked all you are and everything you have on being a disciple of Jesus. Quite frankly, the option of turning back is not even an option. There is quite literally nothing there for you. You've given it all away. You've been following Jesus, and you've, you've watched him minister to the broken. You've seen him raise a lame man to walk. You've watched him cause blind eyes to see. You've seen him cause the mute to sing praises to God. You've, you've witnessed him, with his own wisdom, confound the most intelligent men in all of Judea. You've seen him love an unlovable prostitute. You've watched him forgive a despised tax collector. You've seen him lay his hands on lepers that no one else was willing to touch. Some of your brothers who are in this band of disciples with you had, had followed him up to a mountain at one point, and they'd literally seen his glory shine like the sun as he'd been transfigured before them. They told you that as his glory was shown, the prophet Moses and Elijah came and stood beside him and talked with him, and the glory of Jesus was so bright that they couldn't even look at him anymore. You are convinced that Jesus is something and someone else entirely. 
He is so far above you, and you believe wholeheartedly that this man is the Messiah. This is the man who's come to save you and your people. This is the man with the power to do so. And now everyone else is starting to realize what you've known for so long. But despite the, the frantic pace of ministry, Jesus was always willing to get away and rest when the time allowed. He was always willing to get away and, and disciple you and teach you and to spend personal time with his father and with you and your brothers. But today, this day is different. What was supposed to be a time for you to have personal time with Jesus and, and to glean from him is different. The, the crowds have not allowed you that reprieve this time, but they followed you all the way across the sea. And many of them have brought their friends and they've brought their family. And as the sun rises higher and higher in the sky, more and more and more people continue to show up to hear Jesus' teaching and to see his miracles. What was supposed to be a time of rest has now turned into the biggest crowd of people you've ever seen outside of a Passover festival. Standing before you is a crowd that rivals the actual population of the city of Jerusalem. The text tells us that it was about 5,000 men. But what the text doesn't account for is for the wives and the children that came to hear about Jesus' teaching. There are nearly 20,000 people that stand in front of you. And when you joined Jesus, you didn't think that this was possible. This kind of following what happened and what is happening before your eyes is astonishing. And as you're marveling that all these people want to come and see Jesus, Jesus turns to you and asks you an unfathomable question. He says, Philip, how are we going to feed all of them? <laughs> and you stop as your mind sort of clicks in and processes what Jesus actually just asked you to do. Because you're used to Jesus asking you to do tough things. He's like that. He challenges you often. But this, this is something that's beyond impossible. And that's when this sort of sinking feeling enters into your heart and your soul. This feeling of inadequacy and inability. This feeling of helplessness that overtakes you. And you scramble for an answer, but you don't have one. And at this moment, you are acutely aware that you are far too weak to accomplish the task that Jesus has asked you to do. And this is where we glean our first point for today. Jesus welcomes us into his work despite our weakness. Jesus welcomes us into his work despite our weakness. Did you know that Jesus loves to welcome the weak into the things he's doing? He's not the kind of leader who only accepts the strong onto his team. He's not the kind of person who only brings the talented and those with notoriety into his camp, but instead, he's the kind of savior who actually rejoices in surrounding himself with those weaker than himself. We may often feel that because Jesus is so superior to us and in church, he is, he is superior to us in every conceivable and possible way. But we can often feel that we have nothing to contribute to the mission of Christ. 
that we don't bring the kinds of talents and drive and qualifications and grit or intelligence that Jesus requires for his followers. And many of us are aware of this. I know because I talk to you and I look in the mirror. Many of us feel this daily, this weakness to not be able to do the things that Jesus calls us to do. But on the other hand, some of us do not feel that at all. Some of us may feel that we're so great in and of ourselves that Jesus cannot help but bring us onto his team. That we are in addition to what Christ is doing. We feel it makes sense when we survey our vast knowledge and our charisma or our determination and our work ethic. It makes sense for us that Jesus would want us to serve alongside him. We feel that we bring a lot to Team Jesus. And whether we can see it clearly or not at all, each of us is a deeply weak individual. Each day, we as disciples of Christ are asked to do the impossible. We are asked to bring spiritual sustenance to a word that is starving for hope. And whether we struggle with pride or we struggle with feelings of self-loathing, Jesus is faithful to welcome even the weakest among us into the mission field with him, into the work that he desires to complete. And the text tells us that though Jesus knew what he was getting ready to do, he still asked Philip this daunting question. It says that he asked it to test him. Jesus was testing Philip's faith. I did some research this week, and I was looking up different ways to test the strength of objects. And, and, and I found out, did you know that there's at least five ways to test the strength of an object? There's more, but I had to limit it. There's at least five. When a scientist wants to test how strong an object is, they might test the tensile strength of an object. The tensile strength of an object is the maximum of amount of weight an object can carry without fracturing when stretched. It's how much an object can be pulled upon until it breaks. They might also try to test the compressive strength of an object. This is how much pressure an object can be under until it crumbles. This is the proverbial adage of being stuck between a rock and a hard place. How much can we be squeezed until we break? Or a scientist might test the fatigue strength of an object. The fatigue strength of an object is how long and how hard an object can be visited upon with the same kind of force over and over and over again. How long can it endure the shock of the same kind of trauma over and over and over again before it breaks? Or scientists might want to test the torsion strength of an object. The torsion strength of an object is how long and how hard an object can be twisted outside of its normal form before it gives way. Or they might want to test the creep strength of an object. The creep strength of an object is how long an object can sustain high temperatures before it eventually breaks and its strength fails. My friends, in this life, just like in the scientific realm, there are many types of strength. And Jesus tests them all. He does this, ultimately, so that we would not be lacking in faith in what he can do. 
My friends, Jesus shows us our weakness so that we would learn not to trust in our strength, but in his strength. He tests our weakness. He tests our faith so that we would learn not to trust in what we have or what we can do, but so that we would learn to trust in what Jesus has and what Jesus can do. And so I'd like to just stop and and ask you to consider this question. In what ways is Jesus testing your faith in this season? In what ways is Jesus testing your faith in this season? Are you being pulled in too many directions? Maybe you are under immense pressure from someone or something or some situation. Perhaps you're dealing with the same kind of shock and trauma over and over and over again, and it feels like it's about to ruin you. Maybe you feel like you're being twisted outside of your normal form. You're being twisted beyond what you can endure. Or maybe you just feel like you've gone out of the frying pan and into the fire. Maybe you just feel like the temperature of your life continues to rise without any cooling down. Be encouraged. Be encouraged, church. Because Jesus dutifully tests those whom he loves. Jesus tests those whom he intends to use. Hebrews 12.6 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, that word can also be rendered tests. He disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. My friends, if we are tested to the point where we feel like we may fail, or if we're tested to the point where we actually do fail and have to confess that we are not strong enough, I want to encourage you that that is a good thing. Being tested beyond what you can endure in anything, certainly your faith, only proves to make you stronger. Because when my faith is tested to the point where it fails, I have no choice but to look to Jesus and say, I am not strong enough, but you are. The task before me is impossible, Jesus, but it's not impossible for you. When I am tested to the point where I know that I cannot possibly bring a solution, I must look to Christ. My soul constrains me to look to Christ and say, you must have the answer for me. So be encouraged. Testing is a normal part of Christian life, and it serves your growth. And as he's tested, let's read how Philip and another disciple, Andrew, respond. Verses 6 through 10 says this, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Jesus said, have the people sit down. Ultimately, we see that when Philip's faith is tested and Andrew's faith is tested, They respond with doubt, and and I'm not throwing them under the bus. I'm sure many of us could say we often respond in doubt when Jesus asks us to do things that are hard or seemingly impossible. But put yourself in their shoes. Jesus just asked you to feed 20,000 people. 20,000 people. Like, I freak out when people show up to my house unannounced, and I have to make a snack. 20,000 people. Like, my family shows up unannounced, and I'm like, I hope you don't expect me to cook. Like, seriously. 
Like the cupboards are bare. We were going to eat saltines for dinner. Like that's, that's where I'm at. And he asked you to feed 20,000 people. This is the second thing that we glean from this miracle is Jesus works through us despite our doubt. He loves to welcome us, even in our weakness, onto his mission, but he also works in us despite our doubt. Philip's best response to Jesus' question is to count up how much money it would take to feed all these people, and he believes about 200 denarii, which would have been the equivalent to about eight or nine months' worth of wages, would be enough for everyone just to have a light snack. And Andrew, who if we think back to John 1, was actually the first disciple that Jesus called to follow him. He brings a boy who has three small, which ultimately would be biscuits, and two fish. And at first, it seems as though he's going to respond in faith until his doubt arises when he says, but what are they for so many? This is too little for the task. At times when Jesus asks us to do something that might seem impossible, we can respond much like Philip responds. We can attempt to find, to make a way, to make the impossible possible. We can use our human reasoning, or perhaps we can say, if I save enough money, or if I work hard enough, or I invest enough time, that we might be able to make the impossible possible. When we're faced with a situation that we don't know how to deal with or understand, we tap into our our limited human wisdom and we try to fix it. Or like Andrew, we might accurately count up our resources, five small loaves, two fish. The rent's $700, but I only have 10. My kids need this much time but I'm completely exhausted. We count up our resources and we say, there's just not enough, Jesus. And we see that the disciples had no good answers. They had no real solutions. And they doubted ultimately that anything could be done about this problem of of feeding 20,000 people. But we see that Jesus works through them anyway. How many of you have heard of the life and ministry of a man called George Mueller? Anybody? George Mueller was a great man of God. He opened five orphan houses during his lifetime in England. And during his 50 years of running orphanages, some 115,000 orphans were fed, housed, and clothed. Almost 10,000 of those orphans were fed directly by George's hand. George Mueller never took a salary. He never asked for donations. But instead, he placed all of his trust in the Lord. Because Mueller believed that God was sovereign over even the human heart. George Mueller believed that if he and his orphans were to eat, that God would, in fact, move someone's heart in mercy to provide the daily bread that they needed. And every single day, George Mueller prayed towards that end. George Mueller believed that if God did not move, that he and his orphans would not eat. And either way, he resigned that him and his orphans would praise God, whether or not they ate. 
And the testimony of his life is that never once in over 68 years of ministry did he or his orphans ever go hungry. There are stories that are told of George Mueller and his attendance at the orphanages. As they got the tables ready and put on the tablecloths and set the plates and the cutlery and the cups and the children went and washed their hands and, and put on their clothes for dinner and sat at table and looked at empty plates. And George Mueller would get down on his knees and he would ask God for the daily bread as hundreds and hundreds of people waited to be fed. And his testimony is that never once was there not a knock at the door that God had moved someone's heart to provide for these orphans, whether it was meat for the night or bread for the night or vegetables for the night. Never once did he go hungry and he rejoiced in whatever the Lord saw fit to provide. And God so provided for Mueller that it was said whenever an, an orphan that was in his care became an adult, he was able to send them out into the world with a Bible in their right hand and a coin purse in their left hand and send them out into the world with faith. George Mueller knew that there was no way that human wisdom or human provision or ingenuity could possibly provide for impossible needs. And he had impossible needs. So he never bothered with such things. He never bothered with human ingenuity. He just asked God and God used him mightily to increase the faith of all those in England, and here's the thing, even though George cared deeply for these orphans, he, he felt he would die for these orphans, his main hope was to help people see that God could be trusted. That's what he wanted. He wanted people to see that God could be counted upon and taken at his word and it's set upon his death that every shop in England was closed, every office was barren. Humble kitchens and beautiful estates were empty as people lined the streets for a procession to give honor to this man who had increased England's faith. God used Mueller just like he would use the disciples. And like them, I'm sure there were days where George Mueller had his doubts. But Jesus used George Mueller because he was willing to be used and he placed his whole confidence in Christ. He placed his whole confidence in God. And it's interesting, what does Jesus direct the disciples to do on the mountain? He doesn't direct them to do anything special. He says, go tell the people to sit down. Organize them into groups and get ready to watch me work. It's a very simple task that they could accomplish, the same thing as George Mueller. George Mueller simply sat his hungry orphans at the tables and he bended his knee to pray. Sometimes Jesus asks of us nothing special, a simple act of faithfulness. Somebody needs to hear this. Just trust and obey. Just trust and obey. A simple act of faithfulness. My friends, sometimes the best thing we can do, both when we're facing huge obstacles or when we're facing an obstacle that we feel may be undane, is simply to sit down Pray to Jesus 
and expect Jesus to work. Because he promises he will. He promises he'll use us as he does. Let's continue reading. About halfway through verse 10, it says this. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. The third thing we see from this text is this. Jesus provides what we cannot provide. Jesus provides what we cannot provide. With everyone on the mountain seated, and all of them looking up to Jesus, Jesus gave glory to the Father in heaven, and he began to break the bread. He took the fish, and he began to break the fish. And as he did, a truly miraculous thing took place. As he broke the bread and the fish, it didn't diminish, it didn't go away, but he broke it as a point where it began to simply multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply as he distributed it to all 20,000 people, all of them. This must have taken all afternoon. It's a small paragraph in our text, but think about that. Think about breaking bread and fish for 20,000 people. Each of those people came and they received their meals from Jesus as the disciples distributed them. And listen to this. This is what gets me and this is what encourages my heart so much. It wasn't just enough for everyone to eat. It was as much as they wanted. Think about that. It was as much as they wanted. Did you know that Jesus' ability to provide for you does not run out? Did you know that you can have as much of Jesus as you want, Christian, and it'll never be exhausted? Did you know that when you're facing trials that you don't know how to deal with or you need Jesus to do something, you can keep coming back over and over and over again and taking as much as you need of him, and he'll never run out for you. We're not witnessing Jesus scraping the bottom of the barrel. We're witnessing Jesus' miraculous power to create a great abundance where there was once lacked. And his desire to take us from a life of hunger, perpetual hunger, to satisfaction and joy in his presence. Jesus is demonstrating his ability to provide for us that which we cannot provide for ourselves He's showing us that he can provide us lasting satisfaction and hope. My friends, this is a gospel picture that we're witnessing here. The most impossible obstacle for all of us is the sin in our lives which separates us from God. The Bible says that God is wrathful because of our sin. And that one of our issues is that we naturally hunger for something or someone to satisfy us. And we seek to satiate that innate hunger in things other than God. We look to something other than Jesus. Sometimes it's food, sometimes it's experiences, sometimes it's other people, sometimes it's material things, sometimes it's titles or accomplishments, whatever it is. And the Bible calls this sin idolatry. It's seeking pleasure in anything or anyone other than God. And this is why Jesus came. He came so that this sin could be dealt with so that our, our hunger could be quenched and we could glorify God again by being satisfied in God again. Jesus dealt with our idolatry by, 
by taking that sin upon himself and dying on a cross so that we could be forgiven as he endured the consequences of our idolatry, as he took on the full unabated wrath of God into himself. And he rose after three days, proving that he dealt with it, proving that he had conquered sin, proving that he had conquered death, and that, that he was the owner of life, and he offers that life to any who want it. He took that wrath upon himself. He, he drank that curse so that we could drink in abundant life. And the Bible tells us that all we need to do is confess our sin and trust that Jesus is the only one who can forgive us and bring us new life and follow him as we see the disciples here doing. So here's my question, church. If Jesus can overcome the hunger of 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, and he can overcome my greatest obstacle, which was my sin, by dying a death on the cross and rising again, if he can overcome those two things, can he not overcome what we are currently dealing with? Can he not overcome our current trials and sins, difficulties, anxieties, feelings? Is Jesus not greater than all of these things? Maybe there's a need in your life right now that's going unmet. Maybe there's a problem too big or a wall you're staring at that seems way too high. Maybe you're listening to a lie about yourself or about your situation that's, that's far too convincing or maybe you're struggling with a debt that is far too deep. You might be living in a situation that seems too complex for you to find a solution to. Or maybe you're stuck in a relationship that's too broken. And maybe there's a shame in your heart that feels too dirty to unfit unveil a sin that's too entrenched for you to believe that you'll ever get out of it. My friends, I'm just a beggar trying to show you where you can find some bread. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. He is the solution for all of these things. I have nothing for you. But I can promise you that Jesus has everything you need. Whatever you're personally facing, I can confidently say that in Jesus, you can find your solutions. There's a specific promise that I want you to hold on to. Paul wrote this at the end of his letter to the Philippians. He said, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We can and should be confident that if Jesus Christ will give us himself, if he will forgive our sins, if he will bring us to salvation and promise us eternal life, he will surely provide us with everything else we need along with himself. Amen? Let's finish up here reading the last two verses. John 6, verse 12 and 13. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. 
So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Here's our last point. Jesus loses none of his own. Jesus loses none of his own. We see that on this day, the disciples had two functions, and they were this, give and gather. Give and gather. The disciples gave the gathered crowd Jesus' directions to sit, and then they gave the food that Jesus had multiplied and provided for the people. The first task mirrored the essential responsibilities of Christ's disciples, his people in ministry, to give the gospel. At Convergent Church, we believe that every believer is a part of the ministry of Christ. All of us, not just those of us who speak, not just those of us who sing, and not just those of us who lead ministries, but all of us are on mission for Christ. There are no professional Christians here. There's only some of us who are tasked to lead in more visible ways. And like the early disciples, we are to instruct those around us, sharing with them how they can approach God, encouraging them to come and, and sit at Jesus' feet and receive the good news of the gospel, the Son of God broken for them. We are to give the gospel. But secondly, their function was to gather. Jesus told them to gather up what was left after all the crowd had eaten. I think all of us would say that living for Jesus is not easy. Living for Christ is, is not always easy. We remarked this week as, as Dan and I prayed with, with some pastors in our city that Jesus says that his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but it often does not feel that way. It's not always easy. Christ often asks of us more than we can feel we can accomplish. And those of us who labor to grow the kingdom of God may often feel that as our mission moves forward as more people come into his kingdom and more responsibilities are put on our shoulders that in this growing sea of voices and mouths to feed that perhaps Jesus just might forget about us. But I'm here to encourage all of you who labor, whether that's preaching the gospel or sweeping a floor or simply loving your neighbor, Jesus doesn't just care about his mission. He cares about his missionaries. He doesn't just care about the mission. He cares deeply about those who are carrying it out. He's at work in the world, but he's also working in us. Notice that when all was said and done, when the mission for the day had been accomplished, when everyone had eaten, each disciple walked away with a basket full of bread all their own. Jesus did this, he says, so that nothing may be lost. And ultimately, I believe that Jesus wanted to show them that as they labor for the kingdom, Jesus would never fail to provide for them or to forget his own. Not only does Jesus love those we serve, our city, but he deeply loves and his love preserves those who serve him, the church. For those of you who have more than one child, do you remember when you had your first kid? Of course you do. Do you remember that sweet season of just having one? I'm sorry. Like, it's that sweet season, right? Where it's like, I have all this love, and I have all this money, and I have all this time, and all this attention, and like, God, I love you, and you're amazing, and you get all of it, right? But what happened when you had two? And then three? And Lord willing, four or five? You began to feel spread thin, 
because more was being asked of you. All your time and your love and your attention and your wisdom and your money now had to be spread, not just doting on one child, but spread amongst many. And it became hard because you wanted to give all of your children the same amount of time and attention, but you couldn't. Here's the good news. There's so much of Jesus that he always can. There's so much of Jesus that he always can. There's always enough of Jesus for all of us. Jesus is never spread too thin. He's never too busy to comfort us. He's never too distracted by something more important. Jesus' priorities are always where they need to be. And we are amongst those priorities. We are important to Jesus. And so I started this morning with this question, how do I know that Jesus won't forget about me? And I can confidently say, because Jesus never fails to provide for his own. He never fails. And so I just want to speak to those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Those faithful saints who've been serving our master for many decades, you who perhaps in this age feel your strength is wearing thin, Maybe you're tired from from long years of service who are often looking at your own life and seeing what Jesus is doing in everyone else's life and wondering, what's he doing in mine? Your Savior has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten you. So I want to encourage you, why not take some time and pray? Why not do what Jesus and the disciples were planning on doing and take some time away with Jesus? Why not get back to that place where you are confident in what he can give you? Why not come away with him across the sea, away from the crowds, and cast your cares upon him? Friends, because Jesus is committed to providing for you and making sure he never uses hold of you, that means you can be involved in the work he is doing, even if you're weak. When you look at yourself and you think there's no way Jesus would use me, I want you to think again because Jesus uses the weak things of the world to proclaim his glory. When you doubt that God can work in your life, I want you to think again because Jesus loves to use even the very doubt in your heart as a test to strengthen your faith in his power as he works in your life. When you think that the need is too great or the hole too deep or the problem too vast or the mouth's too many, look to Jesus and see him miraculously provide the answers and solutions that only he can provide. And when you think, surely my weakness, my doubt, my inability, my sin, my limitations will cause Jesus to forget about me, I want you to think again. Because even as Jesus is working out his mission in the world, he never forgets his missionaries. Child of God, disciple of Christ, I promise you that there will always be a basket waiting for you. There will always be enough bread. There will always be a place at Christ's table. There's enough of Christ for you and enough Christ for every burden. I want to close with a quote by George Mueller. This is one of the last things he wrote in a book before he passed. He said this. He said, my dear Christian, why not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God? This way is open to you as to me. 
Everyone is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord, to trust in him with all his heart and to cast his burden upon him and to call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ? I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can be at peace because you know that Christ cares for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that you care for us. Lord, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would convince our hearts of that. Lord, so often we are like the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, you test our faith so that it may grow, and Lord, help us to rejoice in that. Lord, help us to welcome the trials of life. Help us to rejoice even in them, for we know that you are with us in them. And Lord, just as the disciples learned that day on the mountain, let us learn that there is nothing impossible for you. And in our own lives, let us see that there's nothing too broken, too complex for you to fix and provide for. Lord, give your people at Convergent Church a great confidence. You are with us. You will always provide. And you will never forget your own. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.